Everybody doing okay? Good. Good, good, good. So uh, my wife was telling me last night, uh, <laughs> my wife does this thing whenever my kids like say something really, really funny, she, she writes it down. Uh, she makes like a note about it and she's got this whole like collection of, uh, I guess if my wife ever writes like a memoir or something, I don't know, uh, but she keeps all this stuff. And um, last night I got home and <laughs> she said on the way home, my oldest said, mom, can I get some eyeshadow? I just think it'll make me prettier. She's 11. And uh, my wife's like, what? And then my eight-year-old goes, Aya, that's not what you need. She goes, if you want to be prettier, it's about waxing. <laughs> and she goes, she goes, you can wax your face, you can wax your eyebrows, you can wax your back, and you can be a back model. And she's like, serious as a heart attack. And my wife just goes, where in the heck did you hear about waxing? Like, what, what's going on here? But my eight-year-old, so if you want to be prettier, it's just, <laughs> it's all about the waxing. So you can be a back model if you do that. So, uh, <laughs> thought that was pretty good. I thought that was, uh, that was worth sharing. So there you go. So we have been, um, we have been working through the gospel of Matthew for quite some time. If you have not been here with us, uh, we've been doing this literally all year. We have, we've slow walked this book of the Bible, but you couldn't have picked a better book of the Bible for all the things that we're going through right now. And, and that's going to be even apparent today. If you haven't been with us, we're in a very interesting part. Uh, not just of the Gospel of Matthew, but of, of, of the entire Bible. What we're, the, the, the section and kind of the, uh, the time in Jesus' life that we're talking about, and we will be talking about from here to the end of the book of Matthew, is the last week of Jesus' life. And so we've been building up to this point, right? Jesus has been in more rural areas. He's been kind of traveling around North Israel. He's got his, his team of guys with him, the, the 12 disciples, and he's been training them and teaching them and walking with them and and the whole time, he's been kind of doing all this, and he's going to eventually go back to Jerusalem. He's been telling his disciples this. We're going to go back to the city. I'm going to get arrested. I'm going to be beat, crucified. I'm going to die, but I'm going to raise again on the third day. He's been sharing this with his disciples. So we've been building up to this. So at the end of chapter 20 that we did two weeks ago, because we had a, a baptism lesson last week, baptized 66 people last week. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so... Um, Really, really good. Some great stories that came out of that too. But two weeks ago, when we were at the end of chapter 20, Jesus is getting closer to the city, Jerusalem. He's about 15 miles out. And as he's getting closer, there's a couple of blind men who hear that Jesus is coming, right? Obviously, they couldn't see him with their eyes because they were blind. And, but they heard the crowd. They heard the, the, the commotion. They knew that it was Jesus. They started yelling out to Jesus, Lord, son of David, save us. And they yell out to him. And the crowd tries to get these people to be quiet because they were undesirable people. And they kept yelling. Jesus heard this. Jesus goes over to him. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Right? And they basically say, heal us, save us. And he does. He heals him. And then it says something very interesting. At the end of chapter 20, it says, and then they followed him. Now, that may not seem that interesting, except we live in a culture now to where a lot of people say, yes, we follow Jesus. We are Christians. But we talked two weeks ago that in a nation that says they are 68% Christian, only 25% of our nation believes that the Bible is the inspired word of God and that we need to follow it. So we're, we're not as Christian of a nation as maybe we, we think we are. And so what we talked about two weeks ago is, is we say Christian, but, but I'm not sure if we understand the definition of Christian or born again. So we talked about that a little bit two weeks ago. This week, we're going to talk about this. We're going to ask ourselves two questions. And um, 
we're gonna have to be really honest with ourselves today. Listen, we'll be able to fool other people. Maybe we can even fool people closer to us, but, but we have to be honest about two things that we're gonna talk about today because God knows. God sees our hearts. God sees our intentions, our minds. He sees all that, so we gotta be honest with ourselves. We're gonna talk about these two things. What is the fruit of our lives? What are we producing, okay? What are we doing? And then we're gonna ask, and listen, at the end, this will come full circle. We're gonna have to be honest. Where is our faith? Really, where is our faith? Regardless of what happens economically, politically, socially, culturally, no matter what happens, where does our faith lie? Where does it lie? We're gonna have to be honest about these two things today, okay? So again, I feel like I'm taken out of context sometimes when I teach. I'm, I'm not anti our nation. I'm not anti voting. I'm not anti any of those things. I wrote this lesson on Monday. I wrote it before the debates. I wrote it before the president got coronavirus. I, I, all that stuff, right? And I'm just trying to teach to you the principles that are in the word of God, okay? So I just wanna preface today with, man, there's some hard truths we're gonna have to ask ourselves about today, right? Okay? So you should have got notes handouts when you walked in. Everything should be in there. Everything will be on the screens if you have the Experience Community app. That's, that's the handiest way. It has all the scripture, all the notes on the app. If you have a Bible, we're in the first book of the New Testament. We're going to do half of the 21st chapter, and it's a really, really fascinating chapter, okay? So I'm going to, I'm going to read a little bit. I'll go back and break it down to the best of my abilities, but let's, uh, let's pray first, okay? All right. Lord, I love you, God, and um, I thank you so much for this church. Lord, thank you for what we're doing right now. There are some places in the world, God, where they don't even have the right and the liberty to do what we're doing right now, so we thank you for that, Lord. Thank you. God, pray that you keep your hand on this church, Lord. Pray, God, that you keep your hand on every church in our city that teaches the word of God, Lord. Pray that you bless them. Pray that you bless the great nonprofits that we work with. Pray, Father, that you keep your hand on our local government, Pray that you keep your hand on our state and federal government, Lord. And, and God, whether people in this room are, are pro our president or not, Lord, we pray that he gets, uh, gets healed and, 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 and Lord, that you touch his body and, and make him well, God. Lord, we pray just for the future of our nation. We pray for, for, for the people around us, God. Lord, that you'd give us wisdom and discernment, Lord, in how we live and what we do. And Father, I pray that you uh, grow our faith today, God. We love you. We thank you, Father, and we pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm in chapter 21. The first part's a little lengthy, so bear with me. And um, one of the hardest cities in the Bible to say, uh, some say it is pronounced Bethphage, some say Bethphage, but I think that's too French to be in the Bible, so I'm just not going to do that. <laughs> Even if it is correct, I don't know, it just feels weird to me. So uh, I'm going to read a little bit, and then we'll go back and break it down, okay? When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples telling them, go into the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her foal. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion... See, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and its foal, and they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. 
a very large crowd spread their clothes on the road, and they were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So again, if you have not been with me, this moment that we're talking about right here has been building for quite some time. Okay, it's been building and building from about chapter 16 in Matthew. It has been building to the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Okay, this is the high point of Jesus's popularity. When I say everyone loved Jesus, we're going to find out everyone didn't love Jesus, but the crowds loved Jesus. Massive crowds. Everyone was excited. They were celebrating. They believed that their savior had come. Right. And they were celebrating in the streets. He was extremely popular. Now, here's what is fascinating. Within five days, five days of this point, the entire crowd is going to turn on him. They're going to turn on him, and here's why. Man, and I'm not trying to, please just don't take me out of context here. They thought Jesus, the Savior, was going to come in and knock Rome off of their place. They thought Jesus was going to come and fix the political system, but Jesus didn't come to fix the political system. Jesus came to save the souls of man. That's why he came. And here's what happened, is the people were disappointed that he didn't come as a king or a politician, but that he came as the savior of mankind. We still have people disappointed in that today, okay? But he didn't come to fight a political battle. He came to fight a battle for the souls and hearts of people. And so as Jesus paused, he was on the Mount of Olives. He was looking down at the city, right? He gets a couple of the disciples and he says, hey, go into the town, You're going to see a donkey and a baby donkey. Get them, bring them back to me. And if anyone gives you a hard time, say that I need them and they will understand. Now, why is this important? It's important for a couple of reasons. One, it fulfilled prophecy. So hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born, the prophet Zechariah said that the Savior would ride in on a donkey and a baby donkey and that they was going to be gentle and humble. So it fulfilled prophecy It showed that Jesus was omniscient, which means he knew everything. He knew where the donkey would be. He knew that there would be a baby tied up next to it. He knew that the owner already believed in him, so it wasn't going to be a big deal. He already knew all those things. It also shows that the whole entire mission had been preordained. From the beginning of time, Jesus knew everything that was going to take place. And this whole situation right here shows that. He knew all. He foresaw everything that was going to take place. And so the disciples got the donkeys and they they made kind of a makeshift saddle for him. They took their coats and kind of draped it over so it'd be a little bit softer. And Jesus gets on the donkey and he starts to ride into town. Interesting fact, this is the only time in the Gospels that I'm aware of where Jesus is not walking. He's always walking everywhere he went. And that's important to note because it shows how humble Jesus was. Jesus came to be a servant. He didn't come to, to ride into every town on like a really strong horse, right? You know, like coming in, making a big deal. No, he walked everywhere. And so a very large crowd, they saw him coming in. They understood the prophecy. They saw what was going on. So they took off their, their, their coats and they started laying pieces of clothing and coats on the ground. They started getting palm branches, laying those on the road, kind of making a path for him. 
And Jesus humbly rode in on a donkey like, like the gentle king that he was. And this is where we get the, the Palm Sunday, right? The, the Sunday before Easter because they laid the palm branches down and he walked in. So that's where that comes from. They're excited to see him. And these massive crowds followed and they yelled, Hosanna, son of David, which literally means savior, please save us. You're the savior, save us. And that's important because they realized first that they needed to be saved. And then they realized this is the guy that can do it. This is the one that can do it. But the problem is going to come in the next five days from this, that they're going to realize that being saved means being redeemed, and being redeemed means sacrifice. It means giving up yourself. It means you're purchased by someone else. And that's where the crossroad happens. And it still happens today. Even in our culture today, everyone loves the idea of being saved, but they don't like the idea of having to be obedient and submit to the Savior. That's where Jesus loses his popularity. Everyone loves the Jesus that bails them out, but no one loves the Jesus that says, now you have to change the way you think and act. Now you have to live differently. We have to be humble. We have to be submissive. We have to be obedient. And the reason why we have such an issue with this in the United States is we're constantly bombarded with the idea of individualism. No one can tell me what to do. No one can tell me where to go. No one is over me. There is nothing greater than me. The God of the United States is the God of self. That's the God that most of us serve. Not us, right? But culture. And this is when Jesus' popularity tanks. When we are called to no longer pursue what we want, but to pursue what God wants. That's when Jesus' popularity starts to decline. So as they roll through the city, the identity of Jesus still was not 100% clear. The whole city was in an uproar. People are like, man, what's going on? Who is that? Why is everyone around them? And they said, this is the prophet Jesus. Now, that's only a, a, a it's an incomplete truth. He, he was prophetic. He did speak the truth and he did speak of things to come. But he was more than just a prophet. This was God in the flesh. And they failed to fully realize his identity. Okay. So Jesus went into the temple and he threw out all those who were buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, yes. Have you never read? You have prepared praise from the mouth of infants and nursing babies. Then he left them. He went out of the city to Bethany and he spent the night there. Okay, so we often talk about Jesus, right? And we, we kind of sometimes paint this picture of kind of like a, a really wussy Jesus. Like he turns a blind eye to all things. He just wants to hug and like, you know, pat you on the head, right? And that's, and Jesus does love you and he does want to embrace you and he does want to comfort you. But there's also a side of Jesus that gets angry. And so when Jesus got to the city center, the middle of town, if you've ever been to Europe, most of the cities are built with the church in the middle and then the city kind of goes around the church. That's kind of how Jerusalem was. The temple's kind of the, the center point 
and everything kind of went around that. So when he got to the city center, he goes into the temple courtyard and he sees that it has become a marketplace. There was all these people making tons of money because of inflated prices. And so Jesus gets angry, starts throwing over tables, kicking over chairs. In one of the gospels, it says he's in the corner fashioning a whip. I love that. Disciples are like, what's Jesus doing? He's like, I'm about to show you what I'm doing, right? Starts running people out with a whip. This is what Jesus does. Now, what's fascinating about that, though, is there was nothing immoral or unethical about selling. What they were doing is they were selling animals in the, in the temple courtyard. In this instance, it says doves. Now, there wasn't anything wrong with that. And let me tell you why. People would travel from all over, not just in Israel, but even outside of Israel. We hear of the Ethiopian who traveled all the way from Ethiopia to come to Jerusalem to worship. When you would travel long distances, it was hard to carry animals with you to sacrifice at the temple. You couldn't carry a bull with you or a sheep or even doves. It would be hard to, to do that. So what people would do, foreigners, is they would come into Jerusalem. They would buy a dove or a sheep or a bull or whatever, how much you could afford, at the temple, and then they would make their sacrifice. It made perfect sense. It was practical. So it wasn't that there was business going on, but it was unethical business. They were inflated prices. People would come into town and, and maybe they couldn't afford the inflated prices that, they were, that, that were being used to buy sacrificial animals. So it wasn't just a money thing. It was deeper than that. It was a problem with the heart. And we find this with Jesus all the time. He wants us to go deeper. It wasn't just a business thing. It was unethical treatment of people. It was being greedy and corrupt. Yeah, it wasn't that the selling of the animals was so bad. It was the way they were doing it. And so the religious community at Jesus' time, and a lot today, cared more about moving product and making money than they cared about the word of God. That's what made Jesus furious. And because the house of prayer had become a house of profit, that's what made him mad. Listen, I'll be straight up with you. We sell things here, but all the money goes to charities and it goes to Doors of Hope and things like that. I'm wearing a shirt that we sold here and all the money went to whatever nonprofit we were supporting for that particular worship night. I don't feel any kind of uh, uh, conviction about that. Now, if I was buying like a Rolls Royce with all that t-shirt money, that's a problem. But that's essentially what those guys were doing. But it doesn't have to be just money. Here's the thing. Anytime the church gets off the mission and purpose of what God wants it to be, I believe that makes Jesus upset. What that means is this. If the church is so concerned about being relevant and cool that it stops teaching the Bible in fear of not being accepted, I think Jesus gets mad. I think when the church becomes too politically charged and starts trying to push a political agenda, I don't agree with it. I don't think that's what the church should be doing. Whenever the church starts becoming a self-help thing and everything that the pastor says is some kind of tweetable little one-liner, here's the thing, self-help and church do not mix because the Christian understands we cannot help ourselves. That's why we need a savior. That's why we're here. So whenever people are like, man, I love self-help, I'm like, I don't because I know that it, with, with myself, I'm gonna screw it up. That's why I lean on Christ for help. So the focus of what we're doing right now is this, and it is always supposed to have been like this, and I think a lot of churches need to refocus. We are to come here on the weekends to worship, pray, read the word of God, and take communion. 
That's what we're to do in this environment on the weekends. That's what the church has pretty much always done. Read the word of God, worship, uh, pray, and take communion. So what happens is, is Jesus does this. He gets all the improper actions out of the temple, and then all the proper action comes into the temple. The blind and the lame and the lost and the children, they start pouring and he starts healing people and doing amazing things and speaking the gospel. And the children are saying, Hosanna to the son of David. So the kids are excited because the church is supposed to be a place where people come to get freedom. It's a place where they get healed. It's a place where they find help and restoration. It's a place where we celebrate the fact that Jesus loves us. So Jesus got the improper things out and then the proper things came in and he modeled that. And what was fascinating is the religious leaders were back in the back and they were ticked off at it. It even says that they saw the wonders that he was doing. They saw people get healed and it made them angry. And then they heard all the children realizing that Jesus was the savior and they're crying out to him. And they go up to Jesus and they're like, are you, are you gonna tell them to stop? Are you gonna tell them to stop saying that? Here's one of the reasons why I love Jesus so much. Jesus gets exceptionally sarcastic at times. And this is one of those, this is one of those accounts. Listen, the, the religious leaders would have been the scholars in the Bible. No one would have known the Bible the way that these Pharisees and scribes would have known the Bible. They would have known every single word virtually by memory. And I love it when they walk up and they say, are you going to tell them to, to be quiet? Do you hear what they're saying? Jesus says, yes, I do. Have you never read the Bible, he says. That's what he says. Have you never read Psalm 8-2? And he quotes it. And basically what he was saying is, the Bible that you claim to follow, you're not, you're, you're not following it. You haven't paid attention. You missed it. And if you would actually know the heart behind the word of God, you would have known that these kids were right and I am the Savior but they missed it. And here's why they missed it. It is impossible to recognize God when we're always looking at ourselves. There's my tweetable moment. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> no, but that's the truth, guys. I have people come to me all the time. They say, Corey, I've, I've never seen God move. Well, when you're busy taking pictures of yourself three or four times a day, six or seven times a day. It's impossible to see God when we're always looking at our own image. It's impossible to hear God when you're watching YouTube three, four hours a day and Netflix another four or five hours a day. It's, it's impossible to find clarity and hear what the word of God says when we're glued to CNN and Fox News all the time. And that's where we get all of our information and direction on life, not from the word of God. Whenever we're con constantly consumed with selfish ambitions in ourself, we're never going to hear God. We're never going to see clarity. We're not going to recognize who he is. And so that's what the religious leaders were doing. And Jesus had kind of had enough at that point. So because it was so crowded in the city, because he was tired of dealing with the religious leaders, he said, hey, guys, let's go stay out of town in Bethany, and we'll come back into Jerusalem in the morning. And that's what he did, okay? So early in the morning, this is where it gets fun. Early in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found, it, uh, and found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to the tree, may no fruit ever come from you again. And at once the fig tree withered. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed 
And they said, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? Jesus answered them, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. So if you're in here and you've been following with me in Matthew, but you've been reading maybe some of the other gospels, Mark, Luke, or John, this exact same story is told in Mark, but the chronology is different. Now, some people look at that, look at that and they say, well, there's a discrepancy in the Bible. The whole Bible must be false, and that's not the case. If you go back and you learn in Jewish culture, the authors during Matthew's time, it was a completely acceptable way to write, actually very common, to take a story rearrange the events slightly in order to emphasize something in the story, right? As long as all the facts were the same. So Matthew wanted to emphasize the story of the fig tree. So the chronology is a little bit different than Mark, okay? So as Jesus and his disciples were walking back into the city the next day, Jesus was hungry and he stopped by a fig tree. I don't know why I found this humorous when I typed it, but Jesus wanted to get a snack, right? I just find that funny. So he's walking down the road, sees a fig tree. He's like, hey, I'm going to get some fruit real quick. He walks up to the fig tree, lifts up one of the leaves, and sees that there is no fruit on this tree. Now, Jesus knew this was going to happen. And, and let me tell you why he did this. Do, do you guys want to know why I always use a, a PowerPoint? 85% of all people learn visually. They learn better when they see something. So Jesus knew this because he created people. And so Jesus knew that people were visual learners. So Jesus always seized an opportunity to use an object lesson. He does it so often with, with, with mountains and hillsides, and he would do it with trees and agriculture. And in this instance, he did it with a, with a fruit tree, with a fig tree. And he walked over, he knew this was going to happen, and now he has a lesson. He had prepared this. So if you've ever seen a fig tree, we actually have one on our property line, uh, right between my neighbor and I's house, we have a fig tree. And what's interesting about fig trees, if you've ever seen them, is from a distance, even if they have big leaves, they look healthy. They look like they're producing a lot. <laughs> look at the analogy. But when you get closer to a fig tree and you lift up the leaf, that's when you can tell if they're actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so one can easily be mistaken by a fig tree from a distance. Look, from a distance, it can look like it's being productive, but when you get real close, you find out that it might not be. We know we're not talking about trees right now, right? We're talking about people. Just making sure. <laughs> so this makes Jesus mad. Let me, let me blow your mind here for a second. The specific function of a fruit tree is to produce fruit. God made that tree for a specific function, to, pro to produce fruit. And when it doesn't produce fruit, it makes God angry. And this specific tree, after he saw that it produced no fruit, he cursed it and it withers away. Imagine being one of the disciples, seeing a tree instantly wither away. Would have been pretty dramatic. It's a pretty good object lesson. And what Jesus was showing the disciples is this. Just like the rebellious religious leaders that should have been producing fruit, but they weren't, eventually Jesus was going to take care of that. He was going to deal with unproductive trees, okay? But it wasn't just for the Pharisees. It was for all people, because in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, all of us will be known by our fruit. 
Not by what we say we are, not by our bumper stickers, not by our tattoos, not by our shirts, not by what we post on Instagram. We will be known by what we produce, by the fruit that we produce, straight from the mouth of Jesus. That's what he says. So if we're to be known by the fruit that we produce, we have to ask ourselves, what should we be producing? What kind of fruit does Jesus want to see from his followers? Now, we have to take this on both a micro level, that means us as individuals, and then a macro level, the church as a whole, okay? All of us combined. Now, here's where I, I get taken out of context. We say that we are one nation under God. We say that we are a Christian nation. Now, if that were true, if we're a predominantly Christian people, we should see predominantly Christian fruit in culture and society, correct? Now, let's look at the fruit of the Spirit, and you ask yourself, have you seen these things in the last 10 months, okay? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So let's take it from blaming everyone else because we're good at that. Now let's ask ourselves these questions. Have I produced these things? Have I displayed these things? We are supposed to be producing the fruit of the Spirit. And not just one or two of those. All of those things are supposed to come from the Christian's life. And then now let's talk about from, from the church as a whole. What fruit should the church be producing? Jesus makes it clear. I said it last weekend. We are to disciple, baptize, and teach. And not just do that, because that's for people who are inside. We're also supposed to go outside. And Jesus tells us we're to feed the poor, we're to clothe the naked, and we're to visit the incarcerated. It is the church's responsibility to produce those things. So we have to ask ourselves, are we doing those things? But what we often say in the United States is, I'm a Christian because I believe. James, the brother of Jesus, made it crystal clear that belief without works is dead as a doornail. James even says, you can tell me you believe, I will show you that I believe by what I do, by my works. They, they, you can't divorce the two. But we often say, well, I believe. James says in the book of James that the devils in hell believe that there's one God and they tremble at that. It doesn't mean they're saved because we have to produce the fruit that God wants us to produce. And so we also don't have forever to push that off. When Jesus looks at the tree and he says, no fruit is ever going to come from you again. This is, this is referring to the opportunities that the religious leaders had and that we have, quite honestly, to repent for our sins. But if we constantly and consistently refuse, there comes a time where Jesus kind of steps back. So not only do we only have one life to live, and listen, do you guys know that you're not promised a long life? The Bible says this life is like a vapor. Jesus says, you're not even promised tomorrow. You're not promised the next day. In 2017, I did eight funerals for people under the age of 30 in 2017. Very clear to me in 2017, we don't live forever. And if we consistently push back the truth, if we consistently refuse to hear the truth, our hearts grow colder and colder until we reach a point to where our hearts aren't even receptive anymore. That's Romans chapter one. That's called a reprobate mind. That's called a worthless mind. And Paul says it's going to get so far that whole societies will believe that the truth is a lie and that the lie is the truth. Do you see it? Do you see it? 
So they asked, the disciples said, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? There's a couple of different things we get from this. Whenever Jesus says, truly I tell you, we should, we should probably pay attention to that. So Jesus says, truly I tell you, that if you have faith in God, fruitless trees like this will be dealt with. What Jesus was saying is, if you have faith in me, if your faith is in me, the minor problems in your life, God will take care of them, okay? Just have faith in me. God will take care of the minor problems. Then he turns around and points at the mountains. And he says, if you have faith in me, not only will the minor problems be taken care of, you can say to this mountain, go into the sea and it'll go into the sea. Now, that's a metaphor. That's not literal. That doesn't mean you can drive to the Smoky Mountains this afternoon and be like, move around, mountains, I believe in Jesus. That's not what he means there, right? He's talking about issues in our life. He's talking about chaos. He's talking about hopelessness. He's talking about addiction. He says, if we put our faith in Jesus, the small problems God deals with, and he deals with the mountains too. He deals with all those things if we'll have faith in him. Also, the reason why the fig tree withered so quickly, listen to this, is when our faith is not in God, things fall apart and they fall apart quick. Did you hear that? When God's not in our marriage, divorce happens quick. When God's not in our family, our children run wild quick. When God's not in our society and our culture, society and culture fall apart quickly. So what Jesus is saying is this. If you put your faith in the God of order, you'll have order, but if you don't, you're gonna have chaos. If you put your faith in the Prince of Peace, you're gonna have peace, but if you don't, you're gonna have unrest. You're gonna have chaos, right? That's what he's saying. Why did it wither so quickly? Because if Jesus is against you, things are gonna fall apart really, really quick, right? And then at the end, we have a scripture that so many people take out of context, right? So if I ask for anything, God's gonna give it to me, anything, so here's the thing about the Bible. The Bible will explain the Bible. And if you go back to Matthew chapter 18, just a couple of chapters back, Jesus says this, whatever you ask for, as long as it's in my will, God will give it to you. So it's not that we can go out and say, Lord, I believe in you. I love you. Can I have a Ferrari, right? It doesn't mean that that's going to show up. Well, but it says anything I ask for, I'll get it. That's why we have those, those, those prosperity gospel people who look at you and say, man, if you just give our just sow a seed for $1,000, and the Bible says, Jesus says, anything you ask for, you'll get it. That is taken way out of context. Anything we ask for that God wants us to have, we will get. That means if we pray for a good marriage, God wants you to have a good marriage. You can have that. If you're praying for protection over your kids and for your kids to, to, to be safe and, and to be loved well and to have a strong family, God wants strong families. You can have that, right? If you're praying for people to be saved, if you're praying for the church to advance, if, if you're praying for, for, to, to have peace of mind and contentment in God, God wants you to have those things, right? So he'll give you those things. The trick is, is we have to be submitted to what God wants. We have to want what he wants. And when we want what he wants, we get what he wants, right? We get those things. Okay, so here's where we have to be honest, okay? Guys, and we're just, we just have to be honest. First, are you and I displaying the fruit of the Spirit? I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm not talking about Joe Biden. I'm not talking about BLM. I'm not talking about the Proud Boys. I'm not talking about whoever hurt you. I'm not talking about that pastor. I'm not talking about uh, your father. I'm not talking about the person that you can't get along with at work. I'm talking about you. We have done so well at blaming everyone else 
But let me tell you, when we stand in front of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, we're not gonna be able to blame everyone else. He's gonna say, what'd you do? What did you do? So right now, if you're being honest with yourself, and guys, I'll be honest with you. There are some of these that I feel like I do very well. And there are some of these I don't do very well. And I need to be full of the Holy Spirit. And I need to go back to God and say, God, I'll tell you, I'm not good with joy. I can naturally be a very pessimistic person. At the beginning of this year, before everything fell apart, I felt conviction over joy. And I made it a point. I said, God, every single day this year, I'm going to pray. This is the day that you've made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. I'm going to say it every day, regardless of how I feel. I'm going to say it because I didn't have joy in my life, right? Something I was struggling with. Peace, I feel like I do okay with that. Patience, every man in the room's like, got me. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> we struggle with that, but we need to work on that. We need to pray about that. Kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, self-control. When's the last time you checked your screen time on your phone? Self-control. Are we displaying these things? Are you and I going out into the world around us and these are the things coming out of us, right? The fruit of the Spirit. And if not, guys, I'm not condemning you. It's something we need to pray about because this is what God expects of us. Are we doing this within the confines of our family? Are we advancing the kingdom of God within our homes? Do you know the Bible says that we have no right doing ministry anywhere else if our home is not in order? You know what it says that in the Bible? You don't have any right going out and telling other people. You don't have any right going on missions trips. You don't have any right doing any of that if your home is not in order. First and foremost, we need to have our home in order. Dads, that means if you're not praying with your kids, you need to be. Moms, it means if you're not sharing the word of God with your kids, you need to be. If we're not teaching and training our home, right, to live in the ways of the Lord, we need to be. Are we advancing the kingdom of God in our marriages? Women, do you respect your husbands? Men, do you love your wives like Christ loves the church? Are we advancing the kingdom of God in our workplaces? Listen, Christian, you should be the hardest, most ethical worker at your, at your office. You should be the hardest worker. You should be there early. You should do whatever you have to do. You should, be, you should have a good attitude. We need to be the light and the example in our workplace. If you don't work, but your job is going to MTSU or going to high school, you need to be the best example there too. You need to have a good attitude. You need to work hard. Are we advancing the kingdom of God in our leisure spaces where we get coffee? Are we doing it at the gym? Are we doing it at the baseball field if our kids play ball or whatever the case may be? Are we being the light? Are we producing those things out in our leisure spaces? Do we fully understand that faith without works is dead? So we can say all day long that we're a Christian tree, but if the fruit is not blooming off of us, what we say and what we do doesn't line up. Isaiah said their mouths are close to me, but their hearts are far away. And they have to be on the same track. Do we believe that faith and works go hand in hand? Okay? Okay. The next part. Listen, man, and guys, please, again, don't take me out of context here. I watched the debates the other night, right? Fortunately, my, my children were in bed because I'll be honest with you, I don't let my kids speak to people the way that those two grown men spoke to each other on national TV. And I sat back, guys, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to play either side of the political coin. I'm not, I'm not trying to do any of that. I sat back and I was so agitated. My wife's like, you got anything to do in the garage? Why don't you go out there? So I just went out in the garage and I turned on the radio and I just got mad out there. 
went back in the house because it was cold. But guys, I'm gonna be honest with you. There was a point where I looked and I'm like, I'm worried. I'm worried about my children growing up. I'm worried about my retirement. I'm worried about foreign uh, countries and us not getting along with people. I'm, I'm, it, it concerns me, I'm worried. And I let some real worry creep in. Guys, I don't think it makes any of us in this room bad people for having worry. I don't think it makes you a bad parent to worry about raising your children in this chaotic world. I don't think it makes you a bad person to, to, to have some fear creep in every once in a while because of our political climate or the future of our nation or any of that stuff. Here's the question, though. When that fear creeps in, when that worry creeps in, where do we go to get that worry alleviated? That's the question. And listen, if you're going to Fox News and CNN, they're not going to alleviate your fear. They're going to crank it up because that's how the ratings go up. You're not going to get alleviation from fear. The Bible says we're not given a spirit of fear, but one of sound mind. And it says not to be anxious of anything, but of all things, pray. The Bible tells you if you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling worry, the solution is go to God. Go to the strong tower. So it's not run to a joint. It's not run to a bottle. It's not run into porn and sex. It's not run into Fox or CNN or MSNBC. In those momentary lapses of fear, hopelessness, depression, sadness, worry, anxiety, what do we do? Be honest right now. Where do you go when you're scared? Be honest. Is it to the loving arms of the is it, into the, is, it in, is it into the loving arms of the only one whose throne will never be moved from its place? The only secure thing that has ever existed. Doesn't it sound like complete insanity to run to all these other things that are fleeting when we have access to the King of Kings? Isn't it insane when you think about it? Because there is an insanity in sin. Right When we let that fear and hopelessness creep in. Because without a reliance and a trust in Jesus, the mountains start to stack up. The fig trees don't produce fruit. There's chaos. There's obstacles. It renders us unproductive. We don't bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit because we're constantly getting bombarded to hatred and fear and turn towards everyone and break that and hate those people and everyone's a racist and everyone wants to destroy you and we're fed all this garbage and we find ourselves being rendered unproductive, stagnant, cold because we've run to the wrong things. That's why so many people are lost. So we have to be honest about two hard truths in our life. I want to ask you, what is the fruit that we're producing? What are we doing with our lives? Guys, we have one shot at this life. One. And what we do with this life determines our eternity. Ask yourself and be honest. You may fool me. You may fool even people close to you. You may fool your coworkers. You may take the perfect pictures of your Bible and the bagel on Instagram. You may do all that stuff. But we don't fool God. If, if, if someone were to walk up to our fig tree, right, and lift up the leaves, what would they see? What is the fruit of our lives? You have to be honest. And does that fruit align itself with the word of God? 
Here's the other thing, and I don't want you to clap or applaud because I want you to really think about this for a second because we're so quick to answer this, but I'm not sure if we really believe it. If we are honest, do we trust that regardless of what goes down politically in the next month, regardless of what happens economically after that, regardless of what happens on foreign soil, regardless of what happens in our city, regardless of how things shake down in this world, do we beyond the shadow of a doubt know that regardless of what happens, Jesus is still the sovereign king of the universe? Do you really believe it? And if you really believe it, you're gonna run to him in times of worry. You're gonna run to him in times of instability and doubt. We're gonna go to him. And there are so many people right now who say, if this happens in November, man, it's all gonna fall apart. Well, if these things happen, the world's gonna end. I'm afraid of this and I'm afraid of that and conspiracy this and this is gonna take place. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings? Do you believe he is the sovereign God of the universe? Do you know everything that is happening right this second? He already knew. And he has known since the beginning of time as we know it. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe it? He is the only immovable force in the universe. He is it. And right now, as I speak these words, go home and read Revelation chapter four. That's going on right now. He is sitting on his throne. And no one can take that from him. No one can move that from him. There has never been an empire. There has never been an entertainer. There has never been an athlete. There has never been a king or a president. Or has never been anyone who has been able to shake Christ from his throne. Do you believe that regardless of what takes place, God is in control? Do you really believe it? If we really believe that, we would live differently. We would live differently. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Listen, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I, I, I feel like I just need to say this to, to maybe someone in the room. Maybe it's just for me. You are not a bad person for being afraid of the future. I'm telling you, when I watched that stuff and when I read the news, I'm like, my Lord, I got two beautiful girls. I, it, it makes me nervous. You're not a bad person for that. I think any parent in this room has worried for their children. My question for you, though, is this. Where do you go to find relief? Where do you go to find hope? When there's hopelessness creeping in, when there's depression creeping in, when anxiety creeps in, when hatred creeps in, where do we run? Where do we go? Where's our answer? Where's our strong tower? Where's the truth? The further we get from Jesus, the more chaos we're going to come into. God is a God of order. God is a God of peace. That's where we need to be running. If you're in this room and maybe you're not a believer and you, you, you're just curious, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Carl is up here. He's our small groups pastor. He'd love to talk with you if, if you want to talk. If you're at home watching this, info at experiencecc.com. We'll get back to you. There's also men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything, listen, and it doesn't make you a bad person if you come up here and you're like, pray for me to have courage. Pray for me to not be in fear. Pray for me not to have doubt. That's okay. 
then the last thing you have is you have communion in your hands. That is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now let me tell you something encouraging. God did not give his only son to die on a cross, shed his blood, and be beaten brutally. God did not do that just so you could fail. God didn't do that so you, could, you would be left high and dry. God didn't do that so we couldn't find relief from our worry and our fear and our doubts. God sent his only son to liberate us. The Bible says to set the captives free. To give us confidence, not in us, but in him and how much he loves us. We can take that communion today and we can be reminded that we worship the only kingdom, right? The God of the only kingdom that will never move, never be toppled, never go away. Only thing we have to do is we have to ask God to forgive us of our sin before we take that communion. Father, Lord, I love you, God. I love this church. I love the people in this room. I pray, Lord, that you strengthen all of us, God. Lord, I dare say that, that, I, I dare say that everyone in this room and probably everyone watching has had moments of fear in 2020. God, it's not that we're evil for having moments of fear, Lord, but what are we gonna do with that? I pray that we all have the courage to run to you, God, to take our hopelessness, our anxiety, our whatever it is, God, that we take it to you, Lord, because you're the only one that can handle it. You're the only one that can alleviate us of that and set us free of those things. Father, we love you. Bless my friends, bless my family. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you, guys.